0: Welcome everybody, and welcome to the podcast today. Today we have Diane Bailey, who is the National Philanthropic Strategy Executive for the Bank of America. And I recently met Diane when we were both speaking at the National Association of Charitable Gift Planners uh, at their conference, which was, I guess, the only the second time they'd been uh, in person in a few years, and they had 800 people there. So that's a that was a pretty big accomplishment for them, for everybody. <clears throat> So at that point, um, Diane was they just released the Bank of America's um, philanthropy study, which for those of you, it's it's what they do every year with or every other year with the Lilly School of Philanthropy. And they've been doing this since 2006. So this is a a great, you know, long study. Some of you know it as the U.S. Trust, study because that's who did it before Bank of America owned U.S. Trust. This year, though, they delayed it a year because of what was going on. And we'll talk about that a little bit. uh, 2020. Yeah, you know, kind of had a big impact on all of us. So we'll talk about that. <clears throat> but as we talked, uh, she explained to me that she's also working with two other studies. The Bank of America has this study on wealthy Americans that uh, I think has just gone out or is coming out. Okay. And we'll talk about that. And then she also has another study that from the Women's Philanthropic Institute. And so we're going to talk about all those things about you know, where's philanthropy is going. So welcome, Diane. That's a long introduction, but welcome and thank you for taking the time, especially uh, since you're on uh this is a day off for you.
1: Thank you so much, Rod. I'm thrilled to be here. We've got a lot of ground to cover and I'm confident we're gonna have a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, that we will have a lot of fun. So first let's introduce you to the audience. Um, and because one of the things I, I love about doing these things is learning kind of the backstory. And as we we're talking it, it became very obvious you're not doing philanthropy stuff because that's what the bank tells you you need to do. This is like who you are. So tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Thank you so much for having me today. And I love starting with this question because I feel so unbelievably blessed that my personal and professional are completely intertwined you really can't tell where one begins um, and the other ends um, because I do have this wonderful gift of being able to live A very authentic life, um, you know, both um, in my free time um, and in my working time. So you mentioned that I'm the National Philanthropic Strategy Executive at Bank of America, and what that means is I lead a team of philanthropic advisors that is part of our foundation and endowment investment management platform, and we work both with donors, whether they're working through a private foundation or a donor advised fund or Uh, directly giving, um, but we also work with endowed um, nonprofits, so operating charities uh, for whom we're stewarding their long-term investment assets on a range of topics, Um, everything from uh, fundraising and uh, high-impact grant making to strategic visioning, leadership development, a lot of board governance, and of course, um, succession planning. Um, So my journey uh, began in higher education Um, rather accidentally, there's another story there, Um, and continued in the practice of law. Um, We are both um, happily recovering lawyers, (laughs) Uh, I can't imagine much better, Um, but I draw upon my almost two decades um, as an attorney working with tax exempt organizations, um, as a corporate lawyer, um, working on also um, tax and regulatory issues um, for nonprofits as institutions. Um, In my day-to-day work, um, both working with clients, I'm a player coach, um, but also leading this extraordinary team um, nationally. In addition to the amazing work I get to do in my day job, as you've already mentioned, you know, my personal life is so intertwined with this work. My real passion, if I could organize everything that I've done over the last decades, it would be around women's leadership in philanthropy. Um, A big part of my origin story in the space is through women's collective giving. Um, And now I'm serving as chair of the Women's Philanthropy Institute National Council. Um, The research that we produce is so powerful to help inspire and grow uh, women's generosity, um, both as donors and volunteers.
0: Cool. I think when we were talking and somebody said, I don't know who it was, described you as it's kind of like an alcoholic being a bartender, right? Do you, I mean, this is your life. This is where you really, you really love it.
1: Yes, I really do. I really do. I'm so grateful to be able to, to blend um, my personal and professional passions. It's a joy.
0: So let's start with the, the Bank of America study on philanthropy. and Like I said, this has been going on since 2006 in in conjunction with the Lily um first explain real quickly why you postponed it a year because normally it's you know it's every other year and um so let's start there
1: yeah it became very clear to us um in 2020 that we should not be collecting data uh that we should be and looking at 2019 uh that we should push pause um and wait for 2020 to come to a close and then study that year um because as we all know That was the year that the pandemic began, um, or certainly our understanding of the pandemic began. And likewise, um, this increased awareness of the lack of racial justice um, in our country became so apparent. Um, And both of those forces together provided an opportunity to understand an unprecedented year in our country and also in philanthropy.
0: Yeah, and one of the intriguing uh, things that that I've I found when we were you were going through it is some of the differences that we you found like in things like how men give versus how women give and um, and this is important because normally we talk about we estate planning attorneys right we would talk about when it goes from the parents to the kids but in reality it goes from the parents to the mom to the kids because you women outlive us men <laughs> and so there's a shift there Um
1: absolutely. absolutely. Um, I'm forever um, reminding um, practitioners um, and individuals and families um, to not be ignorant of the importance of preparing the rising generation to steward the $84 trillion that's coming down the pike, um, but to also recognize that women in many instances will um, control uh, the philanthropy for many years um, before it's gone uh, to the rising generation. Um, And I have great hopes uh, for what, Female philanthropy will look like um, in that era Um, because we've already seen glimmers of it today. I mean, look at Mackenzie Scott, right? She's our icon and our inspiration, and really living the best practices of philanthropy. You know, heart based, um, immersed in data, uh, trust based philanthropy principles through multi year, unrestricted, transformational gifts. Um, She's really setting the stage for an exciting new day.
0: Well, and just the shift, you know—you mentioned one word right in the middle there, just this shift about unrestricted is huge in, in the Absolutely. impact that we're going to have. Yeah. yeah,
1: no question, no question.
0: Some of the other things that I remember from when you were talking about, w- one of the issues you talked about was impact investing and the fact that, you know, looking at this in the future, is this going to be an addition to philanthropy or is it going to be considered a substitute for philanthropy? And
1: right. yeah, that's a topic we're really, really paying attention to, um, you know, certainly just to define what we're talking about as it relates to impact investing. That's when you would align your investment assets, whether they're private assets or philanthropic assets. I mean, we certainly see these investment strategies that are mission aligned both in private portfolios, but also in charitable portfolios. Um and, and match them up with your, your values. Um, you know, there are a range of different ways you can do that um, whether it's um, an avoid benefit contribute strategy, whether it's um, aligning an equities portfolio or making direct investments um, you know, the, the possibilities are almost endless. Um, but we know from our bank of America study of philanthropy, the longitudinal study since 2006, that in our last study, only 5% stopped giving. Um, And instead, we're focusing on impact investing. But 5% (laughs) were not giving because they were focusing on impact investing. And likewise, about a third Um, there was some substitution effect um, happening where they were maybe pulling back on some of their charitable giving um, to prioritize their impact investing. And with what we know from our new study, the study of wealthy Americans, which looks at a range of topics, um, not only philanthropy, and looks at broader um, approaches to wealth, um, art, um, and a number of other um, considerations. uh, What we know from that study is that really the rising generation has very little trust for traditional models of investing. I mean, they're looking to impact investing, to non-traditional asset classes like cryptocurrency, even art for its ability um, to appreciate in value. And so, you know, knowing that they've got um, that that, uh, forward-looking edge, I would be curious to see whether those percentages grow in terms of the substitution um, effect um, with impact investing in philanthropy.
0: And now first, is that study out now? I mean, is that? It,
1: is. it was released on October 11th. Okay. Um, and so it's available on the Bank of America website.
0: Okay. We'll talk about that then too. The other thing that I found fascinating when you start thinking about what do we need to look for in the future, and which is one of the things that's near and dear to us because you know we're having our twentieth anniversary annual conference in may, and it's we 're going to look at where we 've come for the last twenty years, but where we expect to go in the next twenty years, and when you look at the intergenerational thing there 's differences in how they look at things it's huge differences and one that that you mentioned was religion. I mean, they're you know they're dropping off in terms of their impact on on religion and religion right now is like the number one, right? Isn't it? Uh, place money goes.
1: Great question. Let me level set and um, remind you that the Bank of America Study of Philanthropy is looking at affluent Americans. So the accredited investor standard is how you can take our survey. What comes back is roughly three percent, and in the top at income and wealth um, for Americans. So of that group of wealthy Americans, um, we see that charitable giving commands the largest wallet share for religion. The highest incidence of giving is basic needs. So when we're talking about incidence of giving, a $10 gift and a million dollar gift count the same, right? Okay. But when you look at wallet share, which is what most organizations really care about at the end of the day, how much money in aggregate is flowing um, to our organization. Now, giving to places of worship commands the highest percentage, and it's been that consistently over time. But as you look at demographic shifts as it relates to formal worship congregations um we're seeing this rise of the spiritual but not religious and so the questions become rod one will we see people not giving as much right because they're not giving to places of worship will they also not learn patterns of broader benevolence because so many people in religious traditions learn values around giving back um, to communities. Um, and so will the roughly 2% of GDP that has been charitable giving um, <laughs> for the last 40 plus years, right? Will we see that decline? Will it become 0. 0.6, 1. 1.6, 1. 1.5? Who knows? Um, but it's something we're paying very, very close attention to.
0: Yeah, and and there's also, the different things that they're looking at. I mean, we you mentioned it earlier things like the income and wealth inequality and you know, the race issues that we've, you know, that came up that really we saw in 2020 with the explosion that happened with uh, the Floyd incident and and many others. Um and so there is a lot looking forward that we don't know. I mean,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Um what I do know Um, and we know this from our research, is that the rising generation is very optimistic about their ability to drive social change, very optimistic. And they do it in a way that leverages every resource available to them, right? They are problem first, solution second, right? And so, you know, problem first, whether it's, let's pick the biggest one, Lack of racial justice in our, in our country. Um, solutions next, right? Charitable giving um, to organizations that are working effectively in this space. Um, impact investing, um, making sure that you're prioritizing managers and companies that are embracing um, these values um, or otherwise serving this um, group um, in, in positive ways. Values-based buying decisions, conscious consumerism, right? Making sure that you're aligning yourself when you're making choices about purchasing goods or services that you're aligning with companies that um, line up with your values. Um, Certainly political engagement, um, whether it's contribution um, or advocacy or candidacy, right? We're really seeing um, these young people um, rising up um, in important ways to influence policy um, through the political process and importantly activating their social networks, right? Right. Um, They are not going it alone. Um, they're certainly um, looking to leverage um, their broader spheres of influence um, to lock arms and to really pursue these ambitious goals.
0: And, you know, and this really is a con- is an extension of what happened when the rising generation started getting involved in philanthropy after the uh, us boomers. The boomer group, if you wanted to support the community, you gave to the United Way or something like that and hope that they did good stuff. The rising generation go, no, I want to know what my dollar is doing. And this is an extension of that of making sure that what they're doing, whether it's their time or their money or their investing or you know, just their buying habits, what impact that's having. <clears throat> and that's a pretty significant shift just in mindset uh, from generation to generation.
1: It's so exciting. And what I would also say is they're not beholden to the Um, institutions or issues of their parents and grandparents, period. I mean, one of the most powerful data points um, around the study of wealthy Americans, the one that came out um, in October, is how committed different groups are to establishing their own philanthropic identity um, different from their family. And so I look at women in particular, 88% of women they're focused on establishing their own philanthropic identity, right only twelve percent say they're focused on honoring their family's um, legacy um, or tradition and um you know you see that across the board um you know with all groups at least um you know six and ten are really committed to forging their own path philanthropically
0: well and which is not really surprising when you think about you know the, the again the boomer generation. How many of the business owners, how many of the money, how much? Everything was driven by the essentially the old white men, right? Um, and the, the wife smiled and nodded and did their thing. And, and now, as there's the shift, you're not seeing that anymore. I mean, when I first started in, in practice, business owners were stodgy old men, I mean, white men. And now that is definitely not the world anymore and as they they get that opportunity they're taking advantage of it i mean they're they're focused on it
1: absolutely i would maybe amend um your characterization though of the history of women's philanthropy but yes um up until relatively recently women could not command the ability to write big checks um women have been on the forefront Um, of generosity and and social change from the beginning, right? I mean, you you look at, um, you know, all of the um, generosity movements, whether it was civil rights or junior leagues or Um, collective giving. I mean, there's so many examples um, over time of women really coming together to leverage the power that they did have um, to really improve the lives of their communities and um, certainly the world. Um, But if you look at um, kind of where we are today with women's philanthropy and where, and a little bit more about where we could be headed, look, women are increasing in their financial and economic power. I mean, we've already that. Um, They're commanding it um, through increased um, opportunity and increased um, pay equity um, through their own um, jobs, um, but also through the money that they'll inherit often twice um, from their parents and and from their spouses. And they give more. I mean, when you control for um, wealth and education, they give more than men. Um, They give more strategically and they give in closer proximity um, to their organizations that they're supporting um, because there's that very, very close connection uh, between volunteering um, and substantially um, generous giving um, for women um, in particular. Um, So again, we started this conversation with a very optimistic forecast um, for the future of female philanthropy, again, um, with the trail being blazed um, in so many important ways by Mackenzie Scott.
0: Well, and when you say more, we're not just talking about more money. We're talking about more percentage, right?
1: Say more about that. Uh,
0: that, that they're giving more of not just more in terms of raw dollars, but they give a, a bigger percentage of what they have available.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will add that they do it more joyfully. Right? right. So if if you, my, my favorite of all of the women's philanthropy institute, women give studies. They do one a year. Um that's their big report. And back in 2017, it was the correlation between life satisfaction and giving. And one of the headlines uh, that I will always carry away is that men find the greatest joy when they give. That first gift, rush of endorphin, right? Doesn't matter if it's $10 or a thousand or a million, just all the same. Women, very differently, um, find the most joy um, when they increase their giving. right? So what a wonderful message to share with gift planners, right? Mm -hmm. And for people that are in the position of asking women for philanthropic investments, um, don't underestimate, one, their ability to give, and two, their desire to give, um, because they do find um, great, great joy in transformational giving.
0: And that's one of the things we, we were talking about uh, with one of the guys I was working with. And, and you know we focus on what's what's their desired outcome and then help them find that that opportunity. And there was the quote from the donor that I just love, and I think it fits into what you're just saying. His quote was, when the nonprofits learn to focus on my need to give rather than their need to get, they're going to get a lot more out of me. And I would
1: further qualify that. And it's not even their need to give. It's their... Desire.
0: Desire to give. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's, yeah. that's how he was equated. It, yeah. it and like, mm-hmm.
1: we don't need to give, right? right. Nobody needs to give. Yeah. Um, it's the desire, the want. Um, again, that, that passion uh, to drive um, impact is what really um, brings women to the
0: table. Right. Now talk a little bit more about the uh, Women's Philanthropic Institute and what you're doing there and how that all fits in with all what we've been talking about here.
1: Absolutely. Um, So WPI, the Women's Philanthropy Institute, is part of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, and we exist to produce um, rigorous academic data about gender differences in giving to grow women's philanthropy, right? I mean, it all exists um, to help women give um, in ways that will be the most impactful, Um, As many of the research studies at the Lilly School, to my eye, um, began with sort of a focus on the nonprofits and their need to leverage um, the generosity of donors, increasingly, we are prioritizing helping women and others leverage the data to be more self-aware in their own giving. Right. So really um, making sure that the data is presented in such a way that is not only helpful to the nonprofit, but it's also helpful uh, to the philanthropist as well. We also have a conference coming up, our first in person in six years. The last ah. year, We only do it every three years. Okay. The last time we were together was in 2017. We had our March 2020 conference ready to go. Yeah. And it was kind of that first week where all of them got pulled back. But we're going to be together in Chicago March 28th and 29th um, in 2023, and it is going to be a incredible celebration of women's leadership. And um, I hope you'll come. Um, it's going to be really, really great. We'll be t- Our theme is All In All Rise, and it focuses on, again, those five, maybe six, um, depending on how you define it tease in philanthropy, time, mm-hmm. talent, treasure, testimony and um, ties. And we'll be hitting everything um, related to um, how we can come together uh, to make our world a better place.
0: And as we close this, how do people get a hold of these things? Like the the Women's Philanthropic Institute, what's the what's the um URL for that? I mean, what's their website?
1: Uh, well, you can find the Women's Philanthropy Institute on all the social media platforms. Um, okay. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They're on LinkedIn. They're on Twitter. Um, and you can just, you know, type into the base, um, you know, Women's Philanthropy Institute, and you'll find it. Likewise, um, Bank of America. Um on our private bank um and Merrill platforms, um we're on all of the channels also. um you can find our philanthropic content or you can also follow me. Um it's diane Chips Bailey. um Diane has two ends and chips has two piece Bailey um and I'm most active um on LinkedIn and Twitter.
0: So what else should we know? I mean, <laughs> that's where what you know, and if we would have started this and said, okay what is what's the one or two things you want to make sure people get out of this uh, by the time we get to the end? It, would you like to add anything now?
1: If I were to add one thing to tie a bow on the top of this conversation, it would be for everyone to understand how important high net worth individuals and families are to the nonprofit sector. You know, we spent a lot of time paying attention to corporate foundations and big main institutional uh, philanthropy, you know, the Gates and the Rockefellers and the Ford. And the reality is, of the money comes from individuals in philanthropy. I mean, it comes from individuals and families. And for a point of reference, corporate foundation and corporate giving overall, including sponsorships and in kind, is 4% of giving, 4%. Planned gifts from individuals and families, planned gifts alone are 9%. Right. And so I think for um, both for nonprofits to really prioritize the generosity um, of their individuals um, and families is very, very important. Likewise, it is critically important for individual donors to know that notwithstanding a one off big gift from a corporation or a foundation, that they are the heartbeat of the sector and those um, loyal annual contributions, those stretch major gifts they are the lifeline um for the philanthropic sector
0: you know i saw this way back when when the crack foundation gave like a billion dollars uh to the salvation army to do all these things and i and i was talking to people and a lot of the fundraising, people who were giving them 10 15 dollars a month or whatever just said well they don't need my money cuz they got a billion dollars and the same with the big givers the, the you know they looked at this and thought well the charity the the corporations are giving all this big money. They don't really need more ours. And I think that's a message that we need to get out. They do need yours. I mean, those corporate gifts, like you said, we're talking 4%. This is not, you know, that's the icing on the very, very, very top of the cake. That's not the cake.
1: And I'm grateful that you have this podcast and there are other opportunities for us to really get the data out so people can understand the reality of the philanthropic sector and hopefully um, work together to make sure that individuals continue to be
0: Thank you. All right. Well, and I'm looking forward, I will try and see if I can get to the, to the uh, uh, women's philanthropic Institute thing in Chicago. That's not very far from me anymore. I would when I was in Portland, it was now it's not anymore. So that would be, that would be great to be able to come to that and see if you can be able to come to our annual conference. And so I encourage everybody that's listening to the podcast. You want more information as, as you heard, there's lots of ways to find it. Uh, if you get on social media, but these are all new Updated materials, so so get these uh, get this information now, and start using it because it's it's amazing how things are shifting, and and uh, I love some of the things that that Diane was talking about. About we don't know where it's going to go, but we want to be watching these particular trends as it goes in the future. Thank you, Diane. Thank, very much. I mean, this has been you know I loved having you here, and and I think this is going to be one that a lot of people are going to listen to.
1: So much the opportunity to collaborate a lots more to come and I look forward to it. Thanks for having me today.